are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. This is episode 11, and today we are talking about the future of open science and what it's like to be an outspoken critic of the current publishing system. Today's guest is John Tennant, paleontologist, independent researcher, and the founder of Open Science MOOC. John Tennant, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. So John Tennant, it's uh, exciting to have you here. Uh, you're quite outspoken about um, uh, about the system of uh, science today. Um, w- what are your issues with uh, science? That's a good question. So I don't necessarily have so many issues with science itself or scientists. It's more about the, the way in which we communicate research. Um, or the ways in which we don't communicate research and the sort of um, effect that this has on research behaviors and research cultures itself. Um, so so one of the main issues that you raise is, of course, uh, open access and, and, uh, and the tall access. Uh, and you're, you're quite outspoken about the large publishers. Um, how do they react? <laughs> so, yeah, with this, you know, open access is fantastic. You know, it, it's set out originally just based on like a set of principles in that the, the idea is that just any human on this planet deserves to have access to the outputs of scholarly knowledge, um, which is so fundamentally basic that any alternative just seems completely bizarre. Um, yet that is what the majority of, uh, sorry, the, the majority of the way in which we communicate research doesn't fulfill that very simple criterion at the moment. You know, I think the latest uh, research showed that only 25% of all historically published scholarly research is actually publicly available, which means that 75% of it is unavailable. Um, and there are many reasons for this, but most of it is that uh, po- in the sort of post-Second World War era, the... Um, commercialization of scholarly knowledge really took off when people realized that there was a, a big a big buck to be made around this sort of thing. We had tycoons like Robert Maxwell move into the space and create large businesses um, around the publication of research. And this led to overall like the privatization of scholarly research. Um, and the result of that was that the process became dependent on what commercial entities valued rather than what was intrinsically good for science or for the public or for researchers themselves. So what's your problem with that? (laughs) So fundamentally, as a human, you know, I believe that everyone deserves access to the outputs of scholarly research. And if we can't do that because we have an industry that makes money by preventing access, then I don't think that's fair. Um, in fact, you know, yeah, fairness is is sort of one of the things which is, which is key to this. You know, I, I believe that most humans, most scientists who enter this space, you know, they have fundamental values based on, you know, justice, truth, transparency, doing rigorous research for, for public good. And then a lot of them at some point realize that actually, wait, that's not how they actually advance their careers. They, these, these principles or these values become uh, secondary to simply conforming to an archaic publishing model that is not in the best, best interest of the public. Um, and the consequence of this, this sort of constrained way of of communicating and thus performing research with the sort of knock-on effects is that we're not using research effectively um, at all. So, you know, if just as a hypothetical, imagine if most climate change research, for example, was locked away. You know, there was very little data out there, very little about the methodology. Then it becomes extremely easy for someone who's anti-climate change to say, why should we believe the research? You know, it it actually sort of makes sense. Um, And that is actually a case. A, A lot of a lot of the most 
uh, most powerful evidence that we have for climate change is locked away behind expensive paywalls and owned as like a private commodity to be traded away by the, by these sort of mega corporations. And therefore, we're having issues all around the world with how we communicate research effectively to actually sort of solve the large issues that humanity faces these days. But uh, but you could probably make the argument that this is just a market problem that uh, somewhere down the line uh, someone else will uh, find a better solution and and that the big publishers will have to adjust or uh, or maybe even uh, disrupt the whole market. Uh, do you agree on that or are you willing to wait for that? <laughs> so that's a good question. Um, I think at the word at, at the moment the term market is a very strange concept when it comes to scholarly communication. So, you know, myself and uh, Bjorn Brems, we submitted a formal complaint recently to the European Commission asking them to actually investigate the scholarly publishing market because it's a very sort of peculiar marketplace or very peculiar industry with some very unusual characteristics. So, you know, in a typical marketplace, um, one of the fundamental aspects of it is that you have substitutable goods. So, for example, you know, if you go to a car ownership, Oh, a dealership, sorry. And, you know, you see one car which you like, but you can't afford it. Then you can actually go and buy a different car instead for a different price. Um, and, you know, there are a range of things which you can substitute for, for what you need. But when it comes to scholarly research in the context of journal articles, you can't substitute one for another. You know, if you need to access the knowledge within one article and reuse that for your work, you can't ignore it and then go inside another one because this is fundamental to how scholarship works. So... The fact that there are no non, non there are no substitutable goods, sorry, within um, the marketplace means that it's not really a market, or at least if it is a marketplace, it's very dysfunctional. Uh, another thing is that for a marketplace to exist, there has to be uh, competitiveness, and at the moment there is very little competition because uh, a lot of the sort of licensing agreements that are made in this space are concealed by non-disclosure agreements, which basically means that. Uh, whenever a publisher interacts with a customer, so for example, a research institute library, uh, they say you're not allowed to disclose how much you're paying and for what. Because if you do, then others will be able to see that and provide competitive pressure, which will put downward pressure sorry, on, on the the, uh, the cost. So prices, in fact, go up much faster because they are more about what libraries are able to pay rather than actually any intrinsic uh, cost or price that goes into the publication process itself. So, so uh, where do you see the change happening? Oh, that's a good question. Oh my goodness. I mean, so this is not a new discussion. It's becoming much more widely discussed thanks to a lot of sort of political initiatives in this space. But where do, where do I see change happening? What I would love to see are research funders being more ambitious in um, how they say that the research that they fund has to be communicated. Um, you know, I think if they do that and they start putting uh, more tight constraints on what publishers are allowed to do and how much they're allowed to charge for the, these services, that might actually force some competition into the space and allow more innovation beyond journals and articles and a PDF. And the consequences of that could be quite far reaching in terms of um, promoting a healthier research culture, promoting uh, a more uh, collaborative sort of process of research behind itself where, you know, collaboration overtakes competition for, um, for publication. And, you know, go back to these these values and principles I mentioned before about, you know, fairness and transparency and rigor and freedom. Um, but, you know, that if if it's coming from a top-down approach like that from funders and from policymakers, then it's probably not going to be as effective unless we actually mobilize research communities themselves to understand what the potential problems are, how things are not working too well, what the potential solutions for these are. So it needs a combined approach of, you know, all groups within this space communicating together effectively about what's in the best interests of the public 
and what's in the best interest of researchers, and then allowing publishing services to to uh, adapt to to that space rather than defining what it is that we should all be doing. So, um, so what's happening this fall with the Plan S and uh, and other uh, funders uh, uh, changing their policies? Uh, it won't be enough. Is that what you're saying? So, yeah, I mean, Plan S at the moment is very uncertain how it's going to play out. One thing which I'm really happy about with Planets is that it's really opened up a discussion. You know, there are so many, there are hundreds and thousands of new voices now coming into this this debate, uh, all airing new views and um, things like that. And I think that that in itself is really great. However, Planets again, it does it seems to be almost exclusively top down. Um, it's coming from politicians essentially, and what we're seeing is a disconnect in many respects between what Planets is enforcing what the publishing industry wants, and in many cases, what many researchers also want. And it seems like there's been a, a disconnect there between uh, communication between the different groups in this space. But, you know, I, I'm really glad that what it's trying to do is it's it's idealistic in a way. It's saying, look, you know, things are moving very slowly in, in this space. Things are evolving, not in a particularly great direction. We need to do something shocking. You know, uh, Robert Jan Smith's behind Plan S said that S in some cases stands for speed and shock and all of these things. And it's had the desired effect in some ways, uh, politically. Um, whether or not it will actually create some sort of systemic change is yet to be seen. But at the moment, it's interesting to sort of be a fly on the wall and, and watch how these things develop. Uh, so so uh, what kind of responsibility uh, lies within the sphere of, uh, of researchers? Uh, how should they um, adapt or, or start to, to change the system? So researchers are intrinsically human. And you know, this this is one thing I think we often forget that you know they have careers and they have families to feed and they have uh, you know uh, rents to pay, and bills to pay, and you know therefore the things which they do have to be based on the things which are going to be beneficial for their careers. And at the moment, what I think we need to do as individual researchers and as groups and as communities of researchers is really interrogate ourselves to ask: Is what we're doing in the best interests of research? and the wider public? And also, is it in the best interest of our careers? And if there's misalignment there, then we really need to start pushing for closing that gap and making sure that when we're actually performing research, it's not just because it's in the best interest of ourselves or of a private company somewhere, but also in the best interests of, you know, like I said, the, the wider society. And that's not necessarily something which researchers always have the power to do by themselves. So for example, you know, there are there are very strange power dynamics in this space. You know, this this publish or perish mantra, which is essentially the career incentive, is often misaligned with doing rigorous research or communicating more effectively. And that's not necessarily uh, within the power of researchers alone to change. So what I think we need is for researchers to be more vocal about concerns that they have um, to, to funders, to administrators, to librarians, to policymakers, and really open up the communication in the space to find out what really works. Um, for all groups uh, in this space. So, um, uh, would you consider yourself uh, an activist then? I think I do a lot of activism, but I don't really like the term. Like, I, I like to, I, I am vocal about these things because, you know, for me, um, you know, open science, for example, for me is, like I say, it's, it's fundamental to just good science or to rigorous science. And it aligns very much with the values that I have as a person. Um, so, yeah, I guess I am a little bit activisty, um, but uh, I, I don't really know. I don't. I don't like the term too much because you know it sort of goes down this path of um, 
how anarchists and activists have been treated historically as sort of uh, anti-establishment. Whereas I feel more what I'm doing is in the best interests of those who I who I work with, those who uh, those who are my friends, and you know, in the best interests of wider society and the public. So, so, but but if um, if researchers uh, or uh, or scientists would be just as outspoken as you, what, what kind of sacrifices would they have to make? What kind of sacrifices have you made? <laughs> That's a really good question. So, you know, in this space, like I said, there are, there are. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of underfunding, and people have careers which they have to have to sort of prioritize. In many cases, I always say to people: never do anything too vocal to put yourself at risk. You know, make small changes, um, open up discussions and debates around these things, but don't do anything which is potentially going to compromise your health or your safety or your financial security. For myself, you know, I, I am independent, and with that, you know, I'm granted a lot of uh, liberty and freedom in what I'm allowed to to say. You know, because there is no threat. You know, if someone uh, wants to attack my career, then I don't have a career at the moment, and I'm quite safe with that. So yeah, I, I do have a lot of. But but with that, there also is, doesn't mean that I can just say whatever I want and do whatever I want without um, repercussion. And I feel, if anything, in my last sort of year or so that I've been independent, it's taught me how to be more responsible with how I communicate things, to be more uh, understanding of different views, and to to listen more to the concerns that people have in this space and when to use that to be not representative just of myself but of the voices who are perhaps less heard in this space. But, but do you think that later in your career this might be uh, be uh, a factor when you apply to, to different positions? It could be. I mean, um, I expect, you know, I, I hold myself fully accountable to the things which I say and the, the actions that I uh, perform. Um, but at the moment, you know, the support which I have from all around the world for these sorts of things is enormous. Um, every now and then people say things like, oh, you know, be careful with what you're doing. You might put yourself at risk. But frankly, you know, if if advocating for things like open science and, um, you know, public access to knowledge is going to compromise my career in a particular space, then that's not a career path I want to take. You know, I want it to be on my terms based on my values and my beliefs with people who share those. And thankfully, I think, the community and ele- or elements of the wider research community are adapting fast enough and you know really in line with uh, how how i feel about many things that i don't foresee that as a problem too much in the future um so we mentioned you you've been quite outspoken uh, towards some publishers do, do you see uh, the publishers um in a in a future scenario where 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 your vision of open science is being implemented do you see the publishers having a role in that yeah absolutely so like one one thing to be clear of like i think in a lot of people's minds when you mentioned scholarly publishers the first thing they think of is elsevier or wiley or one of the big five but publishing is actually an, an incredibly diverse industry like there are a lot of small publishers a lot of non-commercial ones a lot of big for private one, uh, for profit ones sorry a lot of ones run by learned societies um, and a lot of them are all around the world as well in uh, non-english language and you know so it's a very diverse ecosystem the thing which i want to sort of uh, do most is not kill the big publishers what i want is them to be fairly competitive and for the business practices that they have not to be um, acting against the best interests of wider society and and of research. I want them to be part of a future system because they have invaluable technology and knowledge and services, but I want them to be competitive fairly and in line with what is good for research. 
and at the moment I think there is a misalignment there with some publishers and and the direction which uh, open science sort of wants to take and I'm hoping that at some point you know if that gap can be closed then we can all start actually working together for a unified future um, but at the moment, I don't see any pressure on a lot of the big players to actually move in that direction. So um, uh, talk to us about uh, the MOOC project and, and how this fits in with with uh, with that kind of a future. Yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the founder of the Open Science MOOC. MOOC in this case stands for a Massively Open Online Community. This sort of began a couple of years ago. I, I remember actually I was walking through uh, Hanoi in Vietnam with my girlfriend and we were talking about open science training and education practices. And we realized that, you know, there was all of this sort of like political action and calls for open science training and education, but no one was really providing it. So I sent out a little tweet just saying, hey, do we need to build some sort of like open science training platform or MOOC? And I got hundreds of responses from people saying, yes, what a great idea. Like, when are you going to build it? And I was like, crap. <laughs> so I sort of dobbed myself in. And um, yeah, what we started to do was bring people together who had this sort of same same sort of ideas and principles and yeah, build what we I like to think of as like a peer peer to peer community based around learning and mutual support and training in all of these sort of open scientific practices that that are you know in a very rapidly evolving space. Um, so that's what it does. You know, we're we're building everything completely in the open. Anyone in the world is free to participate. We're already translating the content which we're producing into different languages as well to ensure that we're uh, accessible to non English. Uh, uh, non-native English speakers as well and you know everything is open for reuse to just encourage as wide uh, adoption of of these sort of practices and skills as possible and you know understanding of the knowledge it's lo- uh, largely a volunteer-run project at the moment but you know we have hundreds of people who are all who are all working on this with me so there really is a, a thriving community vibe behind behind everything and you know we all we all share, you know, these principles and values behind open science. We all believe that there are ways which uh, we can be doing research better, um, and we want to try and, you know, implement them. So, what's next? What's next in uh, in the open science? What are you following? What are you waiting for? Um... Hey, goodness me! Like, there's so much happening all the time. It's it's really difficult to keep track of. You know, for for myself personally, I'm. I'm still working uh, mostly on building the the Open Science MOOC. So we we launched the first module uh, just last week um, online on an open source platform, of course. Um, and yeah, we we I, we need to just continue building content, developing the community, making sure that we're working with other initiatives in the space. So like the uh, Joint Roadmap for Open Science Tools, the uh, Open Scholarship Initiative, all of these really great sort of international um, collaborations in this space, and make sure that we're really um, giving the community a sort of voice in the space and you know tra- continuing to train sustained engagement across uh, across silos yeah but you know in the in the broader sense of things I, I really don't know what's going to be happening in the future like this is one of the things which is so exciting about this space at the moment is that new things come out all the time you know when plan s was announced it sort of came out of nowhere and you know that's where the shot came from it was like wow you know research funders are you know they're packing a big punch here um in the new year who 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 knows what's going to happen? Um, it's all very exciting, and uh, yeah, I, I just want whatever whatever happens. I just want to make sure that researchers themselves have a voice in this space. John Tennant, and that's been a pleasure. Cool. Thanks so much. <laughs> Hi everybody, this podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. 
please sign up for our newsletter on opensciencetalk.com to get the latest updates on this podcast. Thanks for listening.